The first item of business is First Minister's questions. Question number one, Douglas Ross. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. And could I start by, uh, I'm sure, speaking on behalf of the whole chamber when we wish Steve Clark and his entire squad all the very best for the Euros. It has been a long 23-year wait for the men's international team to qualify for a major finals. And I know in their first match against the Czech Republic on Monday, against the Alde enemy on Friday, and their final group stage match against Croatia on the 22nd of June, they will have the support, the hope, and the backing of the entire country. Can I ask the First Minister if she stands by her statement given to this chamber when she said that grades would not be based on, and I quote, algorithms, statistical models or historical performance at schools? First Minister. Uh, yes, I do, but before I come on to slightly more detail on that, can I uh, also take the opportunity today to wish uh, Steve and uh, all of the Scotland uh, men's football team uh, all of the best uh, as they prepare to uh, embark on this European uh, Championship campaign. Uh, on Monday afternoon, uh, 23 uh, long years of frustration uh, and pain uh, and standing on the sidelines will come to an end. And, uh, the team has done us proud already, but uh, to echo Douglas Ross and I'm sure everybody across the chamber, uh, we are all absolutely behind them um, as they kick the first ball and will be behind them all the way through the tournament and uh, we all hope that is for quite a considerable way uh, into this tournament who knows perhaps the whole way but good luck to Steve uh, and all of the team. Um, I stand by that statement uh, absolutely. Uh, this year's national qualifications uh, awards are based on teacher judgment. Um, that teacher judgment is evidenced uh, by uh, the attainment of pupils not by past results or by algorithms. No learners' grades will be marked down or up because of their school's past performance. If any learner has demonstrated that, for example, they deserve an A grade, then an A grade is what they will receive. There are quality assurance uh, processes in place, and we may come on to discuss them in more detail, but neither the SQA nor Education Scotland are involved in these processes. Once uh, provisional grades are submitted to the SQA, they will not be changed because of any school's past performance. Douglas Ross. So the First Minister says she stands by that statement, but the evidence paints a very different picture. So let's just go through some of that evidence. An Education Scotland report published last week said that three in four councils in Scotland are analysing results using historical attainment data. Some councils have published their own reports, and this is what they say. Inverclyde are holding data analysis meetings before submitting grades. Edinburgh are making adjustments based on previous attainment data. And East Renfrewshire has a checklist to ensure that teachers compare this year's grades to the last three years. All of this in direct contradiction to the promise given by the First Minister to this chamber last week and reiterated just a few moments ago. Once again, young people will lose out based solely on where they go to school. This is the same shambles as last year. It's just more sleek it. Because instead of the SQA marking pupils down at the end of the process, the system will force teachers and schools to do it first. How on earth can young people have confidence in this system when the First Minister's words don't match reality? First Minister. What, what Douglas Ross is trying to suggest happens is simply not the case. So let me 
uh, take uh, the Chamber and uh, those watching at home uh, through the process. I have already set out uh, that awards this year are based on teacher judgment. Uh, teachers arrive at those judgments uh, by looking at the attainment, the work uh, that pupils have done. Uh, there are no past results or algorithms that dictate uh, what an individual learner's uh, grade will be. Um, in terms of the quality assurance uh, process that is in place, and I think everybody would expect uh, some process like that to be in place, uh, the only way in which a school's past performance is looked at within their own local area is to identify whether a school overall might have provisional grades that appear to be significantly out of step with past performance. However, and this is the important part, if that happens, uh, what happens then, not by the SQE, not by Education Scotland, uh, but provisional grades are checked again by the relevant teachers. And the key part is this, if the teacher's judgment is that they stand by the result they gave. That result stands. It is not changed. So it's simply a checking uh, procedure, but it ends in the same place, where it is the teacher's judgment based on the attainment of the pupil uh, that determines the grade. Uh, and then provisional grades uh, are submitted to the SQE. Uh, the SQE are not involved in that process before that. When the provisional grades are then submitted to the SQE, they will not be changed because of a school's past performance. That is a world away from the situation last year where algorithms and the past performance of schools uh, automatically changed uh, the performance and the grades of some pupils. That is not happening. Uh, this is a system that is based on teacher judgment, evidenced by the work that pupils have actually done throughout the year. Douglas Ross. The First Minister chose to ignore all the points I read out from Inverclyde Council, from Edinburgh Council and from East Renfrewshire Council, because the harsh reality of this system is, if you're lucky enough to attend a consistently high-achieving school, your grades probably won't be reviewed. But if you attend your local school, where people work hard but not everyone gets five A's, the kind of schools that the First Minister and I both went to, then your grades are more likely to be lowered. Last night, I met with members of the Scottish Youth Parliament who spoke about how unfair this system is. They feel their voices have been ignored and pupils with exceptional circumstances are being overlooked. In this year of all years, we should be going out of our way to recognise exceptional circumstances and listen to young people's concerns. So I asked them if they were able to put points to the First Minister, what would they say? Cameron, Liam and Sophie all said young people should be able to appeal their grade without the risk of it being downgraded. The appeals process is supposed to ensure that pupils get the grades they deserve, but instead this year's system is asking them to roll the dice with their future. So will the First Minister do something about this now, allow an appeals process that doesn't risk downgrades and ensure we make this system fair? First Minister. I'll come on to the appeals process in uh, a second, but already we see here Douglas Ross used the word sleek it earlier on, and if I may say so, I think there's a bit of that in how he posed that question, because he took the comments of young people, perfectly legitimate comments of young people, about the appeals part of the system, and almost suggested that they were backing up what he'd said about the earlier part of the system in his first question. So before I come on to appeals, let me uh, conclude uh, the explanation around the first part of the system, the main part of the system, because we want to get it right on the first time for young people so that they don't have to appeal. Uh, Douglas Ross said that I ignored the points he made. I didn't ignore the points he made. I simply refused to go along with his uh, misrepresentation of what that means in practice. Uh, if a school's uh, results are reviewed because they appear 
at face value to be out of step with previous years. That is not the operation of an algorithm automatically downgrading pupils, as would have happened last year. That simply triggers a checking by teachers. And if the teacher judgment is that the uh, original grade stand, that is the final decision here. It's simply at that stage, before results go to the SQA, it's about a quality assurance process. But fundamentally, it is the teacher judgment that stands. And at that point, the SQA is not involved. And when the SQA does become involved, no algorithm, uh, no past performance influences a young person's grade. Now, it's really important that that is set out clearly because this matters to young people across the country. On appeals, I understand and I absolutely recognise that there are different views on the appeals process. I think where there is consensus is that it is right to offer uh, a universal uh, availability of appeals free of charge this year. But there are uh, two issues uh, that have divided opinion, and I understand that, and great care has been taken. One is on the no detriment versus symmetrical system, which uh, Douglas Ross was asking about. And on balance, uh, in common with other parts of the UK and past, uh, past experience, it has been decided to uh, adopt the symmetrical uh, process because that is fair because it is based only on the attainment of young people. Um, and then the second uh, issue, of course, is whether there should be a ground of appeal based on exceptional circumstances. Uh, and what the system tries to do is build that into an earlier stage so that a young person who suffers a bereavement, for example, doesn't have to rely on appeal. They have an extended time to submit the evidence for their original uh, grading. So we've taken great care around all of this. We will continue to do that. But I would say to Douglas Ross, uh, by all means, raise all of these issues. It's really, really, really important that they are scrutinised. But don't try to confuse the different issues to make a point that actually doesn't stand in reality. Douglas Ross. I'm glad I have permission from the First Minister that I am allowed to raise issues such as education in Scotland and the effect it is having on young people right now and in the weeks and months ahead. Because despite what she tried to suggest in her answer there, I will not stop listening with and engaging with young people of this country and giving them a voice in this parliament because they seem to be ignored consistently by the First Minister and her government. Because the only thing that young people parents and teachers watching today will have heard is that they are wrong and the government's right. Why should they trust this First Minister though on this? Because we just have to look at what happened. Pupils were told no exams this year, except everyone knows they've sat exams in all but name. Yeah. Parents were promised yeah. no historical data would be used, except we know that's exactly what's happening. Teachers were told grades would be based on their judgment alone, except there is an algorithm lurking in the background. Young people feel cheated by another deeply unfair system that judges them on where they're from, not how they did. The life chances of tens of thousands of young people are at stake. The 2021 exam crisis has already started, but this government acts as if nothing is wrong. So just what will it take for the First Minister to step in and act before this government lets down Scotland's young people all over again? First Minister. Douglas Ross doesn't need anybody's permission, certainly not mine, uh, to raise issues in this chamber, but I would say to him uh, that it is a responsibility of leadership to engage in uh, issues responsibly, not to misrepresent them, particularly when it's the life chances of young people uh, that uh, we are talking about, and not to try to confuse issues in order to back up political points that frankly don't stack up in reality. 
And actually, I think people listening here, whether they agree or disagree with the judgments and decisions that the government is making, will not have heard me say everybody else is wrong and the government is right. They will have heard me try to set out uh, calmly and rationally the position as it is uh, to take on some of the misrepresentation uh, that we've heard from Douglas Ross today um, and to uh, readily concede that some of these issues uh, do divide opinion and we've had to make judgments based on what we think is the right situation overall. In fact, many of the judgments we are making are the same judgments, albeit in different education systems, that different governments of different parties in other parts of the UK are arriving at as well. These are not straightforward issues, but they are hugely important issues. Um, and this is not a case of me stepping in to do something. I, with the Education Secretary, engage on these issues each and every single day, uh, listening to teachers, listening to parents, listening to young people above all else, and arriving at the best overall judgments that we can. Doing that responsibly on the basis of the situation as it is, not on the misrepresented situation that Douglas Ross has put uh, forward today. And that's what we will continue to do in the interests of young people all over Scotland. Question number two, Anna Sarwar. Thank you, President Officer. Can I join the others in wishing the Scotland men's team all the very best for the European Championships? This is their opportunity to catch up on the great leadership shown by the women's team in recent years. And can I wish good luck uh, to Steve Clark and to Captain Andy Robertson and uh, thank them because they will give us, I hope, a summer of hope, optimism and cheer after what's been a really difficult year uh, for us all. First Minister, the government can try and deny it, but we are in the midst of a second exams crisis. In an unprecedented letter this week, many children's organisations, the Scottish Youth Parliament, the parents' groups and leading academics beg the First Minister to listen and ensure exceptional personal circumstances can be used to appeal grades. One such example is Ellie, a sixth year in Glasgow. Her case demonstrates why this is so important. She lost her mother in March of this year. And despite being promised by this government that there would be no exams, she found herself needing to sit several assessments, exams in all but name. There was no evidence available of her prior performance due to lockdown. Her lost education time has been exacerbated by grief. Does the First Minister believe that such circumstances would impact on Ellie's performance in assessment? First Minister. Uh, yes, I do. Um, and this is not a question of whether or not the system recognises that. It is a question of how the system is recognising that. And I, I absolutely concede there are differences of opinion on this. But just to be clear about it, instead of somebody, and obviously I don't know all of the circumstances of Ellie's position, but somebody in that position, instead of them going through the process uh, to submit all of their evidence, getting a grade, and then if it's not the grade that they think they deserve, having to appeal. The system has built in contingency arrangements so that instead of having to uh, submit that evidence by the 25th of June, which is the, the deadline, they, have an extended or they, they can have access to an extended period until September. So it takes account of those circumstances, gives young people longer uh, to get that evidence together and longer for their grade uh, to be determined. So this is not a question of whether those kind of circumstances circumstances should be taken account of. It's simply the method that the system is using. There are differences of opinion. We continue to listen, uh, but it would not be accurate for anyone to say that the circumstances such as Ellie's are being ignored in the system that we have. Anna Sarwar. Thank the First Minister for that, and I'll, and I'll come to a moment about why September is in itself a problem. But the problem we have is that the process that the First Minister has outlined simply isn't good enough. The cast-iron guarantee that the Education Secretary made this week means nothing without changes to the actual system. Because Ellie is just one example, 
And let me give another example to the First Minister, which highlights the problem about September. A mother was in touch regarding the year her son has had. Due to terminal illness in his family, he was required to shield and not return to school in person. He was told that this would have no detriment, detrimental effect on his education. He performed well earlier in the year before he had to shield. But three weeks ago, his school informed him that his grade in one subject would be submitted as a class average of 68%. This despite his grades early in the year being far higher. The only option he has in the system the First Minister has outlined is to present more evidence in September. But if he waits until then, he risks losing his conditional apprenticeship place. Does the First Minister believe this family has been treated fairly? And does she accept that by forcing them to wait until September, she has created a failed system that risks this young person losing his future? First Minister. Um, so I think these are important issues and we have to uh, consider all of these particular cases to make sure that the system overall uh, can respond. So if I can go to, to the end of that, the September point, there is a, a need and, and this uh, is recognised uh, for the, the pupils that will be taking advantage of that contingency arrangement to engage with uh, universities, colleges or employers about any knock-on effects. And if and as Sarwar wants to send the particular uh, case, then I can make sure that that is happening. But that should uh, be happening, and that's something we've got to make sure uh, happens so that there is not uh, disadvantage at, at that end. But can I come back to the more fundamental point? Because um, my, my apologies, I, I didn't catch the, the young man's name uh, that Anna Sarwar uh, talked about. Uh, but in that case, if the fundamental issue here is because of the understandable circumstances, the evidence of attainment has not been able to be provided within the timescale, this gets to the heart of it. An appeal is not going to rectify that because appeal can only look at the attainment evidence that is there. That is why extending the timescale for evidence to be accumulated and submitted is seen to be a fairer way of doing this. So this is genuinely in an imperfect situation because the, the lack of exams, the, the situation the pandemic has created is far from ideal, but in an imperfect situation, finding the best overall way. There will always be individual circumstances that we need to look at and make sure that we are taking proper account of. And I give an assurance today that we will make sure uh, that happens. But we are seeking to do this in as fair a way as possible. And I think I've just highlighted there why relying on appeals for exceptional circumstances is not always the best way to do that. And, and the way we are choosing to do that, while absolutely not perfect, is in many ways preferable. Anna Sarwar. The issue is this isn't an individual case. And we all accept the situation isn't perfect. But an imperfect situation does mean someone losing their life chances. Because this is the key point of their, their lives where getting attainment and what they do with their future life will be impacted. So that's one example of that case I referenced. There are lots of examples about why the September system simply does not work. Now, this parliament voted to incorporate the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child into law. If that is to mean something, we must listen to what young people are telling us right now. Earlier this week, the Children's Commissioner said he is concerned that the exams process does not uphold young people's rights. Cameron Garrett, the only young person on the group that developed this year's process, says that young people have been ignored. This SQA crisis has all the hallmarks of last year's crisis. The use of historical data in moderation, a non-functioning appeals process, and a government refusing to listen and engage. Young people across Scotland have had the hardest year of their lives. You have had a year to develop a system that worked, but there are now just days to improve the flawed process. So will the First Minister 
now finally listen to Scotland's young people and introduce a no-detriment appeals policy and make personal circumstance part of the appeals criteria? Or will young people be forced to take to the streets again this year to force her to change her mind? First Minister. Again, we, we will continue to listen. We have paid uh, very, very close attention to all of these points of detail and come to uh, difficult judgments, but the, the judgments we think are right overall. And again, uh, these are really important points, but describing an appeal system that hasn't even started yet as non-functioning, I don't think helps with the, the, the delivery of a system and the proper discussion of, of some of these issues. I recognise uh, the, the issues for some people with the September extension, but that is not the same as saying that making exceptional grounds uh, a, a ground for appeal is the way to fix that, for, for the reasons I've set out. Uh, I'm struck, I think I quoted it last week, Jim Thewlis uh, from the School Leaders Association making the point that the system, while not perfect, is the, the best one in these circumstances. Um, and he makes the point that few people have come up with alternatives uh, to what is in place. So we will continue to look at all of this. Um, hard lessons have been learned from last year. I would caution against uh, the, uh, what we've heard from Douglas Ross and just alluded to at the end there from Anna Sarwar. There is no algorithm that is determining young people's results. And I don't think it is fair uh, to young people to, to create the impression that there is. This is a system based on teacher judgment. Uh, that is correct. The appeal system is open to all, uh, free of charge. We've taken a very difficult decision around the no detriment symmetrical uh, system. The, the Welsh Government, as I understand it, Labour Welsh Government has done the same in a different education system. I'm not making that as a party political point, but to recognise that these are actually not political decisions. We are trying to do the best and coming to these judgments and often from different, different political persuasions coming to the same judgments. We will continue to listen, we will continue to look at all of the detail of this and we will strive to make sure that every young person uh, gets the service from the education system and the exam system that they deserve so that they do have the opportunity to make the most of their life opportunities, notwithstanding the difficulties of this pandemic. Question number three, Willie Rennie. In light of the growth in short-term teaching contracts, how many of the 3,500 teaching and classroom assistant posts that the Scottish Government has committed to creating will be given permanent contracts? First Minister. Well, can I say, first of all, uh, and this follows on all of our discussions so far today, that our education system is at all times reliant on the hard work and dedication of teachers. Uh, but that's particularly true right now. And I think we all recognise the effort and resilience they have shown to support young people during the pandemic. Uh, the reality right now is that we need all possible teaching resources at our disposal to support education recovery. And therefore, and I'll come on to uh, say in a moment why I'm uh, couching it in this way, I would expect uh, permanent employment opportunities to be the priority. We're working closely with COSLA regarding the employment of teachers for the next academic years. Local authorities are currently undertaking an assessment of their own staff requirements to support education recovery. Uh, the reason I've couched it in that way, of course, is just the reality that the recruitment and deployment of teachers and other support staff in local authority schools are matters for councils because they are the employers of those teachers. But I would expect uh, the number of jobs uh, and permanent uh, posts, the number of permanent posts uh, and jobs to be absolutely uh, maximised within, of course, that discretion that local authorities must have to meet their own needs. Willie Rennie. I'm afraid that's just not good enough. The First Minister takes all the credit for recruiting 3,500 extra teachers, but is nowhere to be seen when their terms and conditions turn out to be shoddy. This week, in an open letter, 2,000 temporary teachers said they were having to take extra jobs 
just to put food on the table. One in ten teachers are now on short-term contracts, bobbing from one precarious job to the next for years on end. This is no way to treat those responsible for educating the next generation. We all know that if the money is temporary, the teachers will be temporary. If the Scottish Government makes the money permanent, the teachers will be permanent. Will the First Minister fix this and treat these teachers with respect and decency for a change? First Minister. Well, the Scottish Government will make the funding for our commitment available, but you know, Willie Rennie can't just gloss over the point I made, or at least he should be honest about his position. If, if his position is that he wants the Scottish Government to take from local authorities responsibility uh, for the employment of and the terms and conditions of teachers, he should say so, um, in which case it would run counter to everything he has said up until now uh, about uh, opposing the centralisation, in his word, uh, of the Scottish Government uh, taking powers away from local authorities. So that is the, the reality. But he should also listen to what I'm saying very clearly. We are making, uh, we will make through our budgets, funding available for the commitment we've made to teachers. And given the need for teachers to support economic recovery, I would expect uh, that what we see are permanent posts and permanent jobs. But if I was to stand here right now and mandate that, then maybe not today, because it wouldn't suit the question he's asking today, but at another stage, Willie Rennie would be accusing me of taking powers away from local authorities and centralising things here in the Scottish Government. Question number four, Kenneth Gibson. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister whether the Scottish Government will support and fund the rollout of body-worn cameras for police officers and ambulance crews. First Minister. Uh, we support the efforts of Police Scotland and the Scottish Ambulance Service uh, to protect the safety and welfare of frontline responders and, of course, the general public. The issue of body-worn cameras for police officers is a policy and operational decision for the Chief Constable acting under the oversight of the Scottish Police Authority. However, as part of our budget allocation for policing this year, we have provided one-off funding of half a million pounds to support their use amongst uh, armed officers. Uh, we we engage regularly with the Scottish Ambulance Service, obviously, and if this is something that the Ambulance Service uh, wishes to pursue in the future, we will engage uh, with them fully in that. Kenneth Gibson. I thank the First Minister for her answer. Last year, there were 6,942 assaults on police officers and staff and 250 on ambulance crews in Scotland. Senior police officers I've spoken to believe that body cameras are a vital tool in increasing officer safety deterring attacks, securing convictions against those who carry out assaults and boosting public confidence in engaging with officers. Whilst NHS England announced last week it would roll out body cams for ambulance crews to deter and protect. Should the current public consultation back an extended rollout of body cams, will the Scottish Government commit to ensuring Scottish police officers and ambulance crews are given the protection they both need and deserve? First Minister. Uh, well, I'm not going to preempt uh, any of those decisions uh, completely, but what I will say is, yes, we will engage uh, to support uh, police officers and uh, should there be uh, that uh, requirement for the ambulance service, then too, and I think I've indicated through uh, my initial answer in terms of the funding we've already made available to the police that there is a commitment uh, to do that. It's, of course, unacceptable that police officers or ambulance staff should be attacked or abused uh, while going about uh, the their uh, duty. Um, so anything we can do uh, to improve uh, their safety, to, to help protect uh, them and of course protect the general public uh, is important uh, to be done and we will continue to engage both with the police and with the ambulance service in these issues. Question number five, Sharon Dowie. 
Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister to comment on reports that local authorities are validating teachers' estimated grades using a school's prior attainment data in order to meet SQE quality assurance processes. First Minister. Uh, firstly, can I welcome Sharon Dowie uh, to the Chamber and, and again, as I have done in response to earlier questions, given assurance to young people uh, that grades given to them by their teachers will not be marked down or up because of their school's past performance. And uh, I'm absolutely clear about that. Uh, if a learner has demonstrated that they deserve a certain grade, uh, then that is the grade they will receive. Uh, teachers and lecturers will be letting uh, young people know their provisional results by the 25th of June. As I have set out uh, before this, there is a quality assurance uh, process uh, underway. I have explained how that will work, and it is important to emphasise again that the SQA uh, and Education Scotland are not involved at that stage. Once the provisional grades have been submitted to the SQA, and again, they are based on teacher judgment, not algorithms, uh, they will not be changed because of the past performance of a school. Sharon Dowie. I thank the First Minister for that answer. It is not just pupils that have an uncertain year ahead, but teachers too. For new teachers who have now finished their probationary year, new jobs have only just been advertised with interviews in the next few weeks. Not only does this create uncertainty for teachers, it causes problems for head teachers trying to fill posts and disruption to classes. Rural schools like the Barony campus in Cumnock face even greater challenges due to their location. Will the First Minister commit to a review of the teacher recruitment process, consider the possibility of increasing the powers available to local authorities to attract new teaching talent, and confirm the funding promised for additional teachers has been allocated to the councils, as I have been told it is not? The councils do not need the Scottish Government to look after recruitment. They need confirmed funding so that they can recruit permanent positions. The First Minister. On the specific point um, around reviewing uh, recruitment processes, I'll happily take that away and, and give that consideration. On the point about funding, the funding will be available to councils. We've uh, obviously given the commitment for the entire parliament. We've made uh, a commitment for the first 100 days, and uh, we will be in discussion with councils about uh, the funding for that. Um, it is important that councils have clarity in order that they can recruit. Uh, I would repeat the point I made to Willie Rennie, though. We are in a situation right now where uh, teachers are required, um, and therefore there should be employment opportunities for teachers. I would expect uh, these in the main to be permanent uh, posts, um, but employers are councils, and therefore they also have to have the ability to assess needs in their local areas uh, and to take decisions based on that. But uh, in terms of the, the points asking for further consideration of certain matters, I will certainly uh, make sure that is done and revert to the member as soon as possible. Question number six, Gillian Mackay. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government is doing to improve trans and LGBTQ plus health care. First Minister. Well, we are committed to advancing equality for LGBTI people. Uh, everyone should be able to access the health care they need when they need it as part of that overall commitment to equality. Um, as part of the remobilisation of the NHS, we are considering uh, the impact of the pandemic on sexual health services uh, and how we improve these further. And that includes, for example, widening access to PrEP. Uh, we are also working with NHS Scotland to improve gender identity services, including reducing waiting times, which I think everybody uh, recognises are far too uh, long, and, and that causes uh, additional trauma and anxiety. Uh, and we will shortly be writing to the National Gender Identity Clinical Network for Scotland to ask them to review and update the gender reassignment protocol. Julian Mackay. I thank the First Minister for that answer. 
I'd like to take this opportunity to wish everyone a happy Pride, but we should always remember that Pride started as a protest. We've witnessed attacks on organisations such as Stonewall in recent weeks, with some particularly wild and untrue allegations. It shows just how far we have to go to make Scotland a truly equal society. Attacks like these cause great emotional pain and have to stop. Trans people are our friends, colleagues and family, and they deserve to be able to express their identity in peace. Will the First Minister stand with me to support trans people and agree that the current situation many trans people face when trying to access gender identity services is unacceptable, including typical waiting times of years for a first appointment? And will she give a clear commitment today that the Scottish Government will take the steps needed, including through providing funding and redesigning these services, to make a person-centred, multidisciplinary approach going forward for trans people in Scotland? First Minister. Um, yes, in general terms, I do um, agree with, with all of that, and I absolutely stand uh, here uh, full square uh, behind trans people uh, in uh, the, the discrimination and stigma and prejudice they face and in the ongoing battle uh, for equality, uh, for which uh, they have as much an entitlement as anyone else in our society. Um, there are many things we've got to do, not least uh, reducing uh, waiting times for gender identity services, and I've already uh, commented on that. But I think all of us uh, have to also recognise uh, that progress, uh, unfortunately, in our society um, is rarely all uh, one way. Uh, we always have to protect um, and continue to win and re-win uh, the progress uh, we made. I also would wish people a happy Pride Month. It did start as a process and the uh, organisation Stonewall, of course, was right at the heart of that and to this day uh, does very good work uh, for people uh, who rely on uh, its services and its support. Uh, we don't have to look too far today, whether it's on LGBTI issues or around sexism and misogyny or racism, to see that there are many forces wanting to take us backwards. And I think all of us have a duty to stand up for equality, however difficult that may be on occasion, to make sure that our progress as a country continues to be in the forward direction and that Scotland is a place where everybody feels valued and respected and able to be who they are. That's the country I want to not just lead, but the country I want to live in as a citizen. And I think we've all got work to do to make sure it is reality and not just rhetoric. Question number seven, Sarah Boyack. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister what action the Scottish Government is taking to address the reported backlog of NHS dental appointments for children and young people. First Minister. Obviously, we have a commitment for patients, uh, including children and young people, to receive NHS dental care and treatment as quickly as possible. We are supporting a range of measures to remobilise the NHS overall, but of course that includes uh, dental services. Um, as part of this, I, I can confirm today actually a funding package of up to £5 million for improved ventilation in dental premises. Uh, we'll also continue to fund free PPE for the dental sector and from July increase that supply uh, by up to 50 per cent. We'll also be reintroducing the Child Smile programme. So uh, across the whole NHS, uh, there is a, a significant challenge to tackle backlogs and get the service back to normal. And that is uh, the case in dental services as well. And we will continue to take the steps necessary to support that. Sarah Boyack. First Minister, I wrote to the Scottish Government last week about waiting times for dentistry and how the Scottish Government analyses them. And the answer was, it doesn't. Dentists have warned of years and years of delays. 
So given that dental care is a vital part of health and wellbeing for children, how is this acceptable? Longer and longer waits for NHS treatment for children and adults mean that many choose to go private. Isn't this just privatisation by stealth? First Minister. No, and, um, but I think it is important and right uh, that we are vigilant uh, around that. It is essential that the NHS provides the services that people need, whether uh, that is for healthcare generally or for uh, dental services in particular. I have not uh, personally seen the letter Sarah Boyack refers to. I am happy to have a look at that and at the response, but I know the Health Secretary met with the BDA, the British Dental Association, just this week, I think, uh, to discuss these very issues. So there is a real recognition of the importance in dental services, as there is across the NHS, to support recovery uh, and to support recovery as quickly as possible. Uh, prior to COVID, uh, just to give some context here, NHS dental services provided over 4 million courses of treatment every year. There is a record number of people registered uh, with an NHS uh, dentist. That covers more than 95% of the population. But there are pressures there. Some of them are COVID-related. Some of them undoubtedly predate COVID. And through funding, uh, through efforts uh, to protect from the impacts of COVID, and also where necessary through redesign of services, uh, the government will support the profession to make sure that people get uh, the care and treatment they need and that they get that on the National Health Service. We move on to supplementary questions, and I call Jenny Minto to be followed by Graeme Simpson. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister to join me in this National Carers Week in recognising the immense contribution carers make to the health and well-being of our loved ones across the country, and to give an update on the SNP Scottish Government's commitment to establishing a national care service. First Minister. Jenny Minto, uh, very much for that important question and what, of course, is uh, National Carers Week. And I uh, want to highlight and thank unpaid carers for the incredible contribution they make. Uh, we introduced the Carers Allowance Supplement to support carers who are in receipt of Carers Allowance. I recognise that is not every uh, unpaid carer, but the uh, Carers uh, Allowance Supplement has uh, helped uh, over 100,000 uh, carers since uh, 2018. Uh, the pandemic has added to the pressure on carers, which is why uh, last year we provided an extra payment and, of course, we plan to do the same this year. Um, establishing a national care service to ensure that the social care system consistently delivers high-quality support for carers and those needing care is vital. In terms of the update, in the first 100 days of this administration, we will start the consultation on the necessary legislation uh, and we will establish a social covenant steering group, which will include those with lived experience of care services and unpaid carers to ensure that the new service is designed around their needs. Graeme Simpson to be followed by Jackie Bailey. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Can the First Minister explain why domestic cruise ships can drop off and pick up passengers from Scotland in England, but not Scotland, and why this ban on domestic tourism is in place at a time when thousands of football fans are, quite rightly, going to be allowed to gather in Glasgow? First Minister. Um, can I say, I... I think I said this the other day and I, I want to reiterate it because I understand as we come out of restrictions and, and start to hopefully continue to get back to normal bit by bit, uh, people will look at different uh, circumstances, different events and say why is uh, something allowed here and not allowed there. Um, sometimes we get these things wrong, which is why we review on an ongoing basis, but every event or category of events has to be assessed based on its own characteristics and we try 
to do that as best we can. So on cruises, and, and the Scottish Government position um, on cruises has been well known and communicated to the industry. It was reiterated this week at, at the request of the industry. It didn't change in any way uh, this week. Uh, domestic cruises will restart when the country as a whole is in level one uh, of our levels of protection. But why not simply allow cruises right now? And that comes down to the particular characteristics. They represent uh, a long-duration, close-proximity form of leisure uh, that our advice says has a particularly high risk of transmission. And when that is combined with the fact that cruises go to multiple locations and can disembark on multiple uh, locations, it increases the risk uh, of spreading of the virus to different parts of the country. That's really difficult for the, the cruise industry because they are an important part of our economy. We want to support them back to normal as much as possible. Uh, but I'm just giving the explanation of why the advice is that it is still prudent uh, to have these restrictions in place right now, uh, while in other circumstances and for other events with the right mitigations, a different conclusion might be reached. I recognise this is difficult for people, but we continue to try to take these decisions uh, based on the best advice and applying the best possible judgment overall. Jackie Bailey to be followed by Bob Dorrit. In July, October and in December 2020, I asked the Cabinet Secretary for Health about long COVID clinics. At the time, I was told that guidelines would be published at the end of that year and specialist clinics would be set up. Six months on, and I'm not aware of any specialist clinics, there are 60 in England, a further 20 planned. Long COVID has affected some 87,000 people in Scotland. They are desperate. And those with the means are turning to the private sector that just exacerbates inequality. Can the First Minister tell me how much longer they will need to wait, many of them in pain, for specialist long COVID clinics? First Minister. So people who are suffering uh, symptoms that may be associated with what is known as long COVID should be accessing their GP services and being referred on uh, as appropriate. Uh, the issue of specialist clinics is an important one. I've discussed this uh, in some depth with uh, the National Clinical Director and, and uh, the Chief Medical Officer. Uh, one of the issues here, and I can't comment on exactly what the nature of the clinics are uh, in England, but one of the issues around establishing uh, specialist clinics at this stage is that there is still a lack of understanding about exactly what specialisms are needed uh, to respond to long COVID because uh, we don't yet, or we clinicians and experts, don't yet fully understand uh, all of the, the symptoms and the cause of those symptoms. So what we are doing in Scotland is funding a number of research projects uh, to develop that understanding and then from that understanding uh, we will establish the longer term provision um, and it is really important that we do that as quickly as possible but right now I, uh, one of the discussions I had with uh, the clinical advisors is one of the constraints right now with the lack of understanding is that nobody can say for certainty exactly what specialisms are needed in a specialist clinic because we have to do the research, we have to learn more about this condition before we can go to, to that stage but this is not important work and it is work we are committed to doing and doing properly. Bob Doris to be followed by Tess White. Presiding officer, I know the First Minister is aware of the Freedom to Crawl campaign which calls in the Mayor's Group and the UK Government to cease using a mother and baby unit in Glasgow which houses asylum-seeking mums and their children. I back the campaign. It is a cramped unit with limited personal space and unsatisfactory communal facilities, which, for instance, sees 20 families sharing just three washing machines, has restrictive visiting hours, and there are various other worrying concerns. Can I ask the First Minister if she welcomes that the Children's, Children's Commissioner is now investigating the impact on families living within the unit? 
Does she agree that the current system of housing asylum-seeking families is deeply flawed? And does she agree that mothers and their babies should be supported in our community and housed within appropriate self-contained accommodation? First Minister. Um, I agree very much with the contents of that question and obviously it's not for me to uh, comment on what the, the Commissioner may do but of course I support any efforts to improve the, the situation and the condition uh, of the children of asylum seekers. Uh, the Freedom to Crawl campaign was raised with me in the Chamber I think last week or the week before. I've since uh, looked into that indeed uh, like I'm sure every other member I'm receiving uh, lots of letters from constituents asking me to support the Freedom to Crawl campaign. Uh, I think the concerns that have been raised uh, are very, very legitimate and I would say again all asylum seekers but particularly young children uh, must be provided with accommodation that properly meets their needs, that ensures they get support and can access the services they need and also enable them to be part of the community and uh, I think these issues underpinning uh, or underlying rather this campaign need to be resolved uh, quickly in the best interest of mothers and babies. We have repeatedly called on the Home Office to deliver more humane and flexible asylum and immigration policies. Um, and of course, we make clear again that our strong preference is for the delivery uh, of asylum accommodation by the public or the third sector. Tess White to be followed by Michael Mara. Thank you, Presiding Officer. I have a constituent with significant health issues who's had real problems getting to see a GP. It took two hypo episodes, three e-consults and four telephone calls over one week before an appointment with the GP was obtained. And that's somebody who does know how to use a computer. Will the First Minister be able to say when surgeries can see patients in person, namely those who need to see a doctor and don't have access to a computer to complete an e-consult e online form? Thank you. First Minister. Uh, GP practices, uh, obviously I, I don't know all of the, the circumstances of the individual case, but it sounds as if it is uh, not uh, an acceptable experience for any uh, patient. I'd be happy to look at it in more detail uh, if the details are provided. GP practices, though it's important to say, have remained uh, open uh, during uh, the pandemic, although they've had to change the way in which they uh, cater for patients. Uh, they continue to provide uh, clinical care, making more use of uh, NHS near me and telephone uh, consultations. But we are very clear that where clinically necessary, it must always be an option to have a face-to-face consultation. Uh, the chair of the BMA's uh, General Practitioners Committee has uh, commented that face-to-face -face appointments are an essential part of what GPs uh, do and they are committed to ensuring uh, the availability uh, of those. Obviously individual GP practices have to assess their own uh, circumstances and risks but it is absolutely uh, essential uh, that patients get access to face-to-face -face appointments where that is in their interest. But on the specific case that has been raised, uh, I repeat the offer to uh, look into that in more detail if uh, the patient wishes her uh, or his uh, details to be passed to me. And Michael Mara. Thank you, President Officer. Students on Dundee University's Oral Health Sciences degree are facing a year's extension due to their uh, court restrictions of the pandemic. Uh, they have been informed that their student support will not be extend extended, despite that extension being given to, by the government to students studying to be dentists alongside them. Does the First Minister agree that this must be fixed um, before to ensure that those students now being forced to leave the course are able to continue? And um, will she ask ministers to meet with me to resolve the issue? 
First Minister. Um, I, I'm going to hopefully uh, do something that's more helpful and try to resolve the issue without the requirement for a meeting. I, I know we did have an issue with this previously. I'm, I'm trying to uh, uh, bring all of the details to my mind right now um, around dental students where that problem was resolved. Uh, if there is a problem with uh, other uh, parts of the, the cohort, I will take that away today and see if we can resolve that without the need for a meeting. If that's not possible, I'll come back to Michael Mara with the reasons why not. That concludes First Minister's questions and I suspend this meeting until two o'clock.